Good morning, everyone. Um, for those who weren't here last week, the reason why I was asking James to adjust this is because I tried to do it last week and I managed to pull it apart into three pieces. So that's the reason. So uh, Genesis 14, if you've got a Bible, uh, if you can flick over to Genesis chapter 14, which is the text that we are going to spend most of our time in this morning. And, um, and we've got some exciting things planned for this morning. We've got a We've got a communion table of all communion tables today, and we're going to see where that goes. Uh, Should be some exciting things that God is going to do in our midst this morning. Um, We arrived from South Africa 12 and a half, nearly 13 years ago to Chicago, and since then, I've developed an absolute love for good food and for fine dining. Um, The the sad reality, though, is a lot of my uh, love and desire for good food and fine dining is living vicariously through certain Instagram follows and watching Netflix documentaries like The Chef's Table. So I don't get to eat all the good food and, uh, and, and, and dine at all the fine dining restaurants that I would love to, but I do make a list when I see a good, uh, like a good restaurant uh, on Instagram, I make a list, uh, a bucket list of places that I want to go to before I end up leaving Chicago or the Lord comes home, whichever comes first. And, uh, and, and occasionally, I get to go to these restaurants and taste the food that I've seen on, 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 on Instagram. And let me tell you, a thousand times over, tasting the food is way better than looking at pictures on Instagram. Absolutely way better. So when I read a, a verse like in Psalm 34, where David writes, taste and see that the Lord is good, I kind of feel like I have a, a real understanding of what David is trying to get across. He's not writing a fact as if it was found in a history book. The Lord is good. It's not what he's doing. He's not making an Instagram post by saying, hey, come and look and see that God is good. What David is doing when he writes in Psalm, in, in, in Psalm 34 to taste and see that the Lord is good is this invitation to join him in experiencing the absolute reality of the fact that God is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We're in the middle of a series through Genesis 12, uh, starting at Genesis 12 all the way through to Genesis 22, and we're learning about the life of Abraham. And the, the series title is called Promised, Believing in a Faithful God. It's my hope and it's my desire today specifically, but generally throughout the series, that we wouldn't only know the fact of God's faithfulness and that we wouldn't only know that God or look back on our lives and see that God is faithful. But I trust that today and throughout the series, we would be invited, just like David was inviting us to taste and see that the Lord is good, that we would be invited through the life of Abraham by the Holy Spirit to realize, to live in the constant daily reality of God's faithfulness. The point that I want to make today, the point that I'm trying to communicate today is this truth, that we don't have to live vicariously through Abraham in order to experience the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. So that's kind of where we're heading off to. Now, Abraham's story starts in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God calls Abraham out. Leave your country, he says, and, and go to the land I will show you. The, the, his faith journey starts with the promise of God. Leave this country and go to the land I will show you. And, and as we've been exploring these last few weeks, when God speaks, he speaks with this creative power, the same 
power that, that declares, let there be light, and immediately there is light, the same power that calls things that are not as though they were, is the same power that God declares over Abraham, speaks over Abraham, leave your country and go to the land I will show you. And, and something comes alive in Abraham's heart. Something comes alive in our heart when we, when we hear God speaking to us. And, and, and Abraham responds in, in verse 4. It says, uh, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And so begins this incredible quest, this incredible journey of Abraham from here, from this place of God speaking to him, to the place where the promises become reality. Abraham responds by believing God. So the point is this, is simply that God's promises and our faith response go hand in hand. That's one of the things we've been learning over the last few weeks. We've also learned from Genesis 12 how we are to respond to the promises of God. In Genesis 12, Abraham does two very particular things. He pitches a tent and he builds an altar. To pitch a tent is what a sojourner does, is what an adventurer does, is what a a, a pioneer does. And the point that we learned a few weeks ago is that we have to learn to settle the reality that if we are called by God, called by God and filled with his promises, the reality is the journey, there, it is a journey from here to there. We don't walk into the immediate fulfillment of God's promises. We need to settle that reality that God has us on this journey. The second thing that Abraham does in Genesis 12 is he builds an altar. That's what worshipers do. And Abraham begins to call on the name of the Lord, which means to to call on God just as he has revealed himself. And by calling on the name of the Lord, Abraham begins to remind himself of, of God's promises. But more importantly, he reminds himself of the faithfulness of God. Reminding ourselves of the faithfulness of God is also the lesson we learned in the second part of the series uh, out of Genesis 13. That's what we need to do whenever our faith falters. When we come up against these moments of doubt and these moments of insecurity and these moments of losing sight of God's faithfulness, we need to remind ourselves that God is faithful. Genesis 13 tells the story of Abraham losing sight of God. And at the first sign of trouble, he heads off down to Egypt. There's a drought that hits the land. He heads off down to Egypt, and he makes an absolute dog's breakfast of, of, of the situation in, in Egypt. He, he, he loses sight of God. He takes it upon himself to try and make things happen. But eventually, Abraham comes to his senses, and he does something that is such an important lesson for us. Abraham returns back to the altar where God first spoke to him. And that's the lesson we need to learn, that when our faith falters, when we come against these, these, these moments or these seasons of doubt and fear and insecurity and beginning to question the goodness of God, those are times we need to return back to the place of God's grace, to go back to the place where we remember God speaking and declaring and revealing his heart to us. What we're beginning to discover through our series is this simple reality, that our faith is directly related to our revelation of a faithful God. I'll say that again. Our faith, our trust in God, our ability to believe God is directly related to our revelation of a faithful God. Now, that's an incredibly important truth, but the truth I want to communicate to us today, I believe, is far more important, and it's this reality 
that in this journey of faith, in this, this, this life of faith, the ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate promise is not God's promises fulfilled. There is something far greater. Although God does fulfill his promises in our lives, although God does cause those things that he's spoken over us to one day come to pass, there is something far greater than all of this, and it's this. The ultimate goal, the ultimate destiny, the ultimate purpose of a life of faith is greater intimacy and greater nearness with God himself. Jesus, we're going to learn today that Jesus is the ultimate promise. I spoke about how Abraham's heart has come alive, or, or you know, when God speaks, his heart came alive, and, and, and I think every, most of us sitting here probably know something of what that feels like. When God speaks, when God, when, God, when, when God makes his will or his ways, as James spoke about today, God makes his will and his ways known to us. Something comes alive in our hearts, because the God who speaks is the God who creates, But I would say it's not just that his promises would be fulfilled. I believe that in our hearts there's a a greater longing for more of Jesus. A greater longing for, for closeness and intimacy with the one who is speaking to us. I've been using this term or this sentence these last few weeks. Communication from God becomes intimate communion with God when we respond to his promises with trust and with faith. I've been meditating on the Psalms. David is the primary writer of the book of Psalms. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful book. I encourage you all, for us all, to at various times to, to reflect on, on, on the Psalms that, that speak of, this, of, this, of the realness, the reality of this love relationship with the Lord. And a couple Psalms that just kind of speak to what I've been sharing this morning uh, have come to mind. Psalm 84 David writes, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for. My soul longs for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. What he's saying is, Lord, it's you that I'm longing for. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage, the the journey towards more of God. As they pass through the valley of weeping, and and, and I think that's such a great statement for David to make because you guys know, I know what it's like when when God has placed this desire for for more in us, but it doesn't always come easily. There is this journey through the valley of weeping, but he goes on to say, it becomes a place of refreshing springs. God alone turns our mourning into dancing. They go from strength to strength until each appears before you in Zion. Psalm 27, another great psalm. Listen to this. One thing, David writes. One thing. One thing above all else. The thing I desire more than anything else. One thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. All the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Psalm 16, David writes, You are my Lord, not God's promises. We've got to be careful that God's promises don't become Lord. You are my Lord, he writes. Apart from you, I have nothing. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. You see, the only way that we can say in our lives, surely I have a delightful inheritance, is if you have made sure that God 
is the center of your life. If you desire anything else, but, or you, if you have any other desire other than Jesus living in the center of, of our lives, we will never be able to say at any moment of the time, you, uh, I, surely I have a delightful inheritance. God needs to be at the center of our lives. And so this brings us to Genesis chapter 14. And just to quickly set the scene, what I'm going to do is just give a quick uh, uh, summary uh, and then just kind of summarize the first 16 verses because it is kind of complicated. So in, in Genesis 13, what's happened in the story so far is that God has significantly blessed Abram. He has fulfilled his promise. The promise that came to Abram was that God was going to significantly bless him. And, and, and God has kept true to his word. And, and because of that, this favor and this, and this goodness of God is falling upon Abraham, but it's, for, it's kind of overflowing to his family as well. Lot and Abraham are now both significantly financially blessed, and the land is becoming too small for, the, for, for, both, you know, for both of them. And so Abraham says to Lot, listen, we need to resolve something here. Something needs to happen. But Abraham, who is so secure in the grace and goodness of God, gives Lot the opportunity to choose for himself which way he would go. And verse 11 of chapter 13 tells us that what Lot does. It says that Lot chooses for himself the whole plain of the Jordan because it looked like the promise. Sorry, because it looked like the garden of the Lord. And something that we've learned so far is, is Lot actually is an incredible contrast to where, David is, uh, where, where Abraham is. Where Abraham is settled and secure in the blessing of God, Lot seems to be uh, kind of determined to try and grab for himself whatever he can. He seems unsettled and ambitious and insecure in the reality that God alone is the one who provides. Something else other than God has taken center stage in Lot's heart. And we've said this time and time again, but friends, anything else living in the center of our lives, even good things that God promises, if they become Lord to us, they will ultimately destroy us. And I speak from firsthand experience. God has promised favor and blessing and increase of influence on church in the city. And we have seen it. I was just reflecting with my family last night, the goodness of God in our lives personally, but in terms of our church, the, the, the people that we've had an opportunity to impact and, and, and see changed and transformed as they've come to know Jesus, the churches that we've been able to plant. And there is a longing in our hearts not to settle, but to say, Lord, we desire more, not because we're dissatisfied, but because we want more people to experience the goodness of God. But I haven't always been in that place of being settled with that. I've been in that place where I've wanted more for the sake of wanting to look more impressive. I've been at that place where I've wanted greater numbers because greater numbers, I thought, would bring greater significance to the city. The reality with that, though, is how much is enough? And that's the danger with anything else getting into our hearts. They become harsh, unforgiving taskmasters. Is 400 enough? Is 1,000 people enough? You see, whenever that becomes the thing that we desire, there is never enough to fulfill what only God can fulfill. And that's what's happened to Lot. And so a quick, a quick overview. So that's, where, that's, that's the setting of the scene for Genesis 14. So let me explain the first 16 verses. There are... There are two kind of groups or, 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 or uh, um, 
in the north, there are, there are four kings that have allied together, led by this king, Kedileoma. And, uh, and he has been ruling over five kings that find themselves just south of the Dead Sea. For 12 years, Kedileoma has been ruling over these five southern kings. But in the 13th year, these five southern kings decide to rebel. And Kedileoma gets wind of the rebellion, and so he gathers his friends together, the other uh, three kings, and they head south all the way down to go and kind of squash this rebellion. Along the way, they decide to kind of pillage a few other kingdoms, and so they actually gather six additional kingdoms or kings as they make their way south towards the rebellion. Eventually, they encounter the rebellious five kings, and they capture them, but unfortunately, the battle is taking place very close to where Lot has set up camp. And so Lot and his family are kind of caught up in this mess, and he has been captured by Kedileoma, and he's about to be enslaved. But Abraham gets wind of what's going on. And in verse 14, it says this, When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he eventually captures Kedileoma, and he rescues Lot. I just want to pause there and make a quick comment about Abraham's response. It would have been totally appropriate, I think, for Abraham to say, you know what, Lot's a knucklehead. He made this decision himself. He made his bed, let him lie in it. But you know what, Lot is Abraham's knucklehead because he's family. And Abraham rises up as this, as this deliverer, as this rescuer to go and rescue his family who has been captured by this illegitimate authority. And to me, it speaks of this incredible theme that we see running throughout the length and breadth of Scripture. Constantly, we see in Scripture the people of God who, 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 who find their way, perhaps making poor decisions, running away from God, judging situations by the flesh as opposed to by the Spirit, being captured by illegitimate authorities, oppressive rulers. God then raising up a rescuer to come and set his people free. We've just read about it here. God raises up Moses in the book of Exodus, which we spent you know, three months looking at last year. Ultimately, God raises up Jesus, the one who is the rescuer and the deliverer, to come and set all of us free. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that. Paul writes about the rescue mission that Jesus has done. Jesus came and he, and, and he transfers us, he rescues us out of this kingdom of oppression and darkness and sin and death. And he transfers our citizenship. He brings us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. A kingdom that is characterized by righteousness and, and peace and joy. And as great as that is, and as amazing as it, as it is to see Abraham deliver Lot, it's so, sim- it's so easy for us to assume that Abraham is pointing to Jesus, the great deliverer. But there's a twist in the story. We actually are introduced to this shadowy, mysterious figure that actually is greater than Abraham, and he's the one who is pointing to Jesus. And so let's read together from verse 17. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedileoma and the kings that were allied with him, in other words, after Abraham had captured or caught up to Kedileoma and and set Lot free, the king of Sodom, who had earlier been defeated by Kedileoma, the king of Sodom came out to meet Abraham 
in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Can I just say a, a, a quick comment? Often after a great victory, I think that's when we are at our most vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. Because it's so easy for us to, to turn towards self-reliance instead of God-reliance. Be careful after a great victory that we don't become self-supporting or self-reliant in terms of what God has called us to, to do. So Abraham is met by these two kings, Sodom, the, the king of Sodom, and this mysterious figure called Melchizedek. So let's read verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom, on the other hand, said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And I have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and share that belongs to the men who went with me to Ana, to Askol, and to Mamre. Let them have their share. After the Second World War, I'm actually reading a, 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 a biography about Winston Churchill, absolutely fascinating biography. And, and after the second, at some point during the Second World War, Winston Churchill says this about uh, the Soviet Union, about Russia. He says they are a riddle inside a mystery wrapped up in an, in an enigma. Basically, Russia really puzzled Winston Churchill and he couldn't quite make them out. And I think the same thing could be said of this guy, Melchizedek. I mean, we, he, he kind of appears on the scene out of nowhere and we have a couple of verses in, the, in, in this particular book and then we have to wait another thousand years until Melchizedek is mentioned again in Psalm 110 and then another thousand years until we find him again mentioned in Hebrews chapter 7. He's this incredibly interesting kind of shadowy figure. And so we, 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 we need to ask ourselves a few questions about who is this, this guy? Because in Psalm 110, it tells us that Jesus comes in the order of Melchizedek. The first thing we learn about Melchizedek is that he is the king of Salem. Salem later would become the city of Jerusalem. He's the king of Salem. Salem means peace. He's the king of peace. Not only that, but it tells us that he is priest of God most high. So obviously God was working in some way in the city of Salem. And, and this gentleman Melchizedek was not only in, put in place as the king of that city, but also a priest of God most high. He is the king of peace, king of Salem. And his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Melchizedek is the king of peace and righteousness. I hope you can see where this is, this is going. The, th the, the second thing we learn about Melchizedek is that he ministers to Abram. Abram comes back from the battle and he's tired and he's exhausted and he's weary after fighting against those, th those other kings. And, and Melchizedek comes out to him bringing bread and wine 
for, in order to nourish him and to strengthen him once again. Thirdly, Melchizedek blesses Abram. You'll see in those verses that we read that what, what Melchizedek does is he prays for Abraham that, that God Most High would bless Abraham and would pour out his favor upon Abraham. What is significant about that is, is for the first time in Scripture, that phrase, God Most High, is used to describe the God of the Bible. In other words, Melchizedek is bringing a fresh revelation of God to Abram. And we see Abram responding a few verses later when he's in an argument with Sodom. He actually refers to his God as Yahweh, the Lord God Most High. Fresh revelation for a, for a new season, for a new challenge coming through this person, this priest, Melchizedek. And then in response to this revelation, I love what Abram does. He gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he has just, just, just received. He's just plundered five, uh, four kings who have captured five kings, and on the way they had captured six kings. So do the math. Four kings had captured five kings, nine and they had captured six kings, 15 kingdoms worth of wealth Abraham has just received. God had promised Abraham that he would be blessed and that through him he would be a blessing to others. Abraham had made the mistake of going after in, in, in Genesis 12, trying to make it happen in his own strength. He had seen something of the fulfillment of God's promise. But when Abraham receives a revelation of God most high, he realizes that the promises fulfilled aren't the real purpose. He lays it down. He says, this is not what I'm after. Wealth and riches, I lay it down because I've got a revelation of God most high. Friends, your promises that God has spoken over you and the promises that God has spoken over me is not the end result of any faith journey. It is closeness and intimacy with God himself. That's the desire of God, that we are more close and more intimate with him. And so, yes, Melchizedek is this mysterious figure, but I want to say the mystery has been solved The riddle has been solved. The puzzle has been solved. Melchizedek is pointing to the great king, the great deliverer, the great rescuer, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, just like Melchizedek was a high priest, Jesus is our high priest, our sympathetic high priest who understands the struggles and the difficulties that we go through, but doesn't condemn us. In fact, invites us to come into his presence and through him, by hiding ourselves in Jesus, we are able to access the throne of grace and find mercy from God in our time of need. Jesus, just like Melchizedek, is a king. He is not just a king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. What is he king of? God's kingdom, which is characterized by righteousness, peace, and joy. Just like Melchizedek prayed for Abraham, Jesus prays for us and releases the blessing and the favor of the Father onto us. Do you know that Romans chapter 8 tells us that Jesus intercedes for us without ceasing? You know what a remarkable truth that is? Have you ever asked a friend to pray for you and then left and wondered whether they actually remembered to pray for you? 
Have you ever been asked to pray for a friend? Let's, now let's get re- really real. Have you ever been asked to pray for a friend and forgotten to? I have at times. But you know the wonderful truth is Jesus is at the Father's right hand interceding forever and always for you and for me. That's who this Melchizedek, this mysterious figure is pointing to. And perhaps most interestingly, just like Melchizedek came out to, to, uh, uh, to Abram with bread and wine, Jesus nourishes us with bread and with wine. Jesus is the bread of life. And Jesus is the new wine. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning as we end off the meeting today. We're going to go back into a time of worship, but we're going to celebrate and, and enjoy the reality that, that Jesus is the bread of life and is the new wine that brings refreshing and wholeness. Just like Melchizedek brought this revelation to, to Abraham of someone greater, Jesus ministers to us, and we realize, friends, that, that, that he is, Jesus is, the ultimate promise. God wants us to understand the reality that Jesus is the ultimate promise. When we break bread, I think sometimes we can tend to kind of slip into a traditional kind of mode or a traditional response to breaking bread. Every one of us sitting here has got some or to, to some certain experience or exposure to breaking bread based on your church background. Some of you sitting here might not know Jesus at all and have no experience with what it means to break bread. And I think what tends to happen is whenever we break bread, we generally go to that place that we're most familiar with. I would suggest that the thing we're most familiar with is this Inward-looking reflection and remembrance. So what happens generally on a Sunday is we have this wonderful meeting of exuberant worship and passionate preaching, and then we come to the point of breaking bread, and everyone lines up very quietly down the aisles, and feels like, and it's, it's kind of somberly walks up and grabs a, a, a bit of bread and some grape juice and finds their way back to their seats and generally puts their head between their knees and quietly and with real somberness and piety considers the reality of what Jesus has done. And there is a place for that. I don't mean to mock. But sometimes we also need to remember that breaking bread is a celebration. Breaking bread is, 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 is a number of things. I've written a few things down about what breaking bread is. Breaking bread is about a blessing. God Blessing us with a feast. God blessing us with the reality of his son having died on the cross and raised from the dead. And now he is the bread of life and he is the new wine. Communion or breaking bread is about participation. Sometimes we, we, and rightly so, breaking bread is symbolic of what Jesus has done. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that by breaking bread, we participate in the life of God. Don't ever kind of brush over the, the, the power of breaking bread. We, we participate in the life-giving blood and broken body of Jesus when we break bread together. Breaking bread is about unity. We have whole loaves of bread at Church in the City for a purpose. Because the Bible teaches we eat from one bread Therefore, we are one body. 
It symbolizes unity, God bringing his people together under the reality of what Jesus has done. Breaking bread is about remembrance, looking back towards the cross and thanking God for what he's done. Breaking bread is about proclamation. We are, we are preaching, not necessarily to ourselves, although when we do break bread, we are preaching to ourselves. We're saying to ourselves, remember, Jesus has died, but he's raised again. But can I say, every time we break bread as a church, we are preaching to the principalities and powers in this city that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as sure as we celebrate his death and his resurrection, we are celebrating the certainty of his return. That's the significance of breaking bread. Breaking bread is about self-examination. It is appropriate to consider ourselves. It is appropriate to to take this this opportunity to break bread with, with some level of seriousness. It's important before we break bread that we realize we don't just do it symbolically, but we do it as an act of worship. If you are here today and you don't follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I want to say this is a wonderful opportunity just before we we take of the, the juice that symbolizes his blood and eat of the bread that symbolizes his broken body. This is an opportunity for us to, to, to surrender our hearts to Jesus and then to, by faith, put that into practice, act that out, as it were, by drinking grape juice and eating bread that symbolizes his body and his blood. But the one that I want to focus on today is the fact that breaking bread is a celebration and is is an opportunity for us to give thanks. I want you to picture it like this. God is hosting a banquet and we are his guests. Now what do you do if you go to someone's house for the first time for dinner? I hope you do this. I hope at some point in the evening you give thanks. You say thank you to your hosts. You, you celebrate the fact that they have hosted you. And that's what I want us to do today. I want us to, to celebrate the fact that God is hosting us at his table. And he has provided this incredible banquet. The banquet of his son, Jesus Christ. Think of one food. Perhaps in, you probably some, some chefs out there are probably going to come back and tell me there are other foods better than bread. But think of one food that if you're hungry, nourishes quite like warm, fresh bread with a big slather of butter on top. I mean, what, that, that smell that kind of wafts through the air. I mean, there's nothing better than freshly baked bread. And what refreshes and what brings joy Now, don't go there in your minds, but what refreshes and what brings joy better than wine? There's nothing like a glass of red wine to just, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but it's it's biblical. The Bible tells you it's okay to drink wine at the end of a busy day to pour a little glass, a little glass of red wine and to to be refreshed. And and, and as true as that is in the physical, how much true is that in the spiritual? So this is what we're going to do, and I'm going to ask Courtney and Mel if you can just help get the, 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 the bread ready, and the worship team if you guys can come up. This is how we're going to do things. This is probably going to be a little stretching for some of you, but I want us to celebrate today. So, they, so the worship team are going to come up, and they're going to provide some music, because music is good when we celebrate, right? The worship team are going to jam a little bit, so there's going to be some live music, and I want us to, to come down. Now, it's going to be a little chaotic, and that was intended. We have... We have grape juice on my left, not a little sip, 
but three quarters of a cup. So you've got a nice lot of grape juice to drink. So grape juice on my left, and we've got a variety of breads on my right. There is roasted garlic, there is uh, cranberry, whole wheat, there is sesame, there is whole wheat baguettes, there is French baguettes, there's even gluten-free bread for those who need uh, a gluten-free option. So at the back here, the sliced bread is homemade gluten-free loaf from my, th- thanks to my wife. So an opportunity for every one of us. Can I say, don't, don't be timid, don't break, don't get religious on me, okay? Don't get religious on me. Don't break, don't break a little piece of bread. Take a hunk, take a, take a chunk of bread, grab a chunk of bread, grab some grape juice, filter back to your seats, and don't sit. Stand, chat to somebody, say hi to somebody while the worship team are playing, maybe pray with somebody, maybe clink a glass and say cheers to all that Jesus has done in our hearts. Can we, can we do that? Can we celebrate the goodness of God together? So let's do that. Let's stand. Let's begin to make our way down. Grab some juice, grab some bread. We're going to enjoy a celebration as we end the meeting together this morning.